Welcome to Civics and Coffee. My name is Alicia, and I am a self-professed history nerd. Each week, I'm going to chat about a topic on U.S. history and give you both the highlights and occasionally break down some of the complexities in history and share stories you may not remember learning in high school, all in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. Hey, peeps. Welcome back. Last week, I dove into the presidency of the father of the Constitution, James Madison. I posed the question about whether you thought his presidency was a success, a dud, or somewhere in between. I also mentioned that we would talk about the woman who meant so much to him, his wife and partner, Dolly Todd Madison, in the next episode. Known as America's first first lady, Dolly Madison was everything her husband wasn't tall, extroverted, and the life of a party. But she was so much more than just Madison's wife, and often her story is mixed in American myth. So this week, I'm going to dive into the life and impact of Dolly Todd Madison. Grab your cup of coffee, peeps. Let's do this. Dolly Payne was born in New Garden, North Carolina on May 20th, 1768, and was the third of nine children. She was raised in a Quaker household where women enjoyed a bit more autonomy than the rest of the country, thanks to the religion's belief that men and women were equal in the eyes of God. From an early age, Dolly watched as her mother, Mary Coles Payne, acted in a position of leadership in their church. In 1769, the family moved to Virginia, where Dolly would spend her formative years. Later in life, Dolly would hold on to Virginia as her birthright and downplay her North Carolinian heritage. The family settled on a 176-acre farm, and Dolly was raised primarily by an enslaved woman known as Mother Amy. Though a part of a progressive religion and community, Dolly was still a woman and therefore had limited opportunities for education. Her father, John Payne, struggled financially throughout her youth, though he made efforts to hide the family's plight as long as he could. While he started out as a planter in the South, he eventually moved the family to Philadelphia when Dolly was 15 in an effort to reinvent himself as a manufacturer. This business venture did not turn into the success he was hoping, and he proceeded to go into further unpayable debts. Eventually, Payne was forced to file for bankruptcy, putting his membership in the local Quaker Meeting House community in jeopardy. Failure to pay debts was a faux pas for Quakers, and John eventually lost his leadership position within the church. Dolly, who stood at 5'6", with blue eyes and black hair, was socially affable at a young age. This was perhaps an unattended result of living in a household where her father struggled to provide for the family. Dolly, perhaps feeling pressure, may have turned to humor and social graces as a way to ensure a successful future, attempting to attract the right suitor who could provide financial security. Her charms and graces seemed to pay off, for she attracted the attention of a local Quaker lawyer, John Todd Jr. Smitten with the young Dolly, John proposed marriage, but Dolly initially demurred and declined his proposal. Not one to give up, he proposed a second time, and Dolly changed her mind and accepted. They were married on January 7, 1790, at the Quaker Pine Street Meeting House in front of their congregation. A young bride, Dolly gave birth to their first son in 1792, when John Payne Todd was born on February 29th. This was followed quickly by their second son, William, 
who was born on Independence Day in 1793. Shortly after William's birth, their home of Philadelphia experienced an outbreak of yellow fever, and the city was quickly consumed with patients. Trying to escape the threat of the fever, John moved Dolly and their two children to Gray's Ferry, south of the city. However, John had to maintain his law practice and stayed behind in Philadelphia. Unfortunately, John caught the fever, and by the time he made it out to stay with his family, he was suffering from the illness. Dolly could do nothing as first her husband, then her youngest William, began to suffer symptoms from the illness and struggle to survive. In what I can only imagine as the worst possible day, Dolly lost both her husband John and William from yellow fever within hours of each other when they died on October 23, 1793. Dolly was widowed at just 25. Devastated at losing her husband and son at such a young age, Dolly sought refuge with her sister, who invited her to regain her strength at Harewood, the estate of her and her husband, Samuel Washington, eldest brother of some guy who would go on to be the president. Multiple marriages was a common practice of the time, and so it was fairly normal for a young widow to remarry quickly after losing a spouse. But Quaker faith mandated that Dolly grieve her spouse for a full year before seeking a second marriage. After winning a contested will battle with the Todd family, Dolly found herself in a position of having to sell assets to help pay her debts and offset her expenses. By chance, she met a man named Aaron Burr who would introduce her to her future husband, James Madison. Upon hearing that Madison wished to meet, Dolly wrote in a letter to Eliza Collins, quote, Dear friend, Thou must come to me. Aaron Burr says the great little Madison has asked to be brought to see me this evening. End quote. By 1794, Madison was a prominent political figure, and Dolly likely knew of the man's reputation. At the time of their meeting, Madison was serving in the Third Congress of the United States in Philadelphia. Upon the term's end on June 1st, Madison made arrangements to return to his family's property, Montpelier, in Virginia. However, he was quite taken with the young widow and sent a request that she make the trip and join he and his family at the compound. In a letter written on his behalf to Dolly, Catherine Coles wrote that Madison, quote, thinks so much of you in the day that he has lost his tongue. At night, he dreams of you and starts in his sleep, calling on you to relieve his flame, for he burns to such an excess that he will be shortly consumed, and he hopes that your heart will be callous to every other swain but himself. End quote. Details of their courtship are scarce. However, whatever Madison said and did must have left quite the impression on Dolly. Despite the age difference of 17 years and the fact that Dolly had not adequately grieved by her religious custom, James Madison and Dolly Payne Todd were married at Harewood on September 15, 1794. Stealing a few moments to herself on her wedding day, Dolly again wrote to her friend Eliza, saying, quote, In the course of this day, I give my hand to the man who of all others I most admire. You will not be at a loss to know who this is, as I have been long ago gratified and having your approbation. In this union, I have everything that is soothing and grateful in prospect, and my little pain will have a generous and tender protector. End quote. After their nuptials, Madison retired from Congress, determined to live out his life on the family estate and manage the farm. 
Dolly moved into the large mansion, sharing the space with her father and mother-in-law. From the sources available, it appears as though Dolly and the original Mrs. Madison, Nellie, got along quite well. Their time spent at Montpelier did not last long. In 1800, as Jefferson was elected to the presidency, he asked his friend and political ally to join the administration as Secretary of State. Unable to secure adequate housing, the Madisons initially joined Jefferson in the presidential mansion, where Dolly proved what knack she had for social events, conversing with both friends and enemies of the administration, and gaining their trust and respect. Perhaps it was this natural ability that prompted Jefferson to ask Dolly to assist in receiving visitors as hostess during some events. And here is the first popular myth about Dolly Madison. While she definitely assisted Jefferson in a number of White House receptions, she was not the only wife to do so. Jefferson circulated through the wives of cabinet members to assist in hosting official dinners. The lore of her impact in serving in Jefferson's administration as official hostess is what led to some referring to her as the first first lady. Alas, there is some debate in the historical community as to just who should wear that crown. Though she may not have been the official hostess of Jefferson's White House, Dolly made the most of her opportunities, expanding her social circle and working with Jefferson to follow established protocols and etiquette when receiving members of other nations. While Jefferson infamously cultivated a more casual look and tone, Dolly understood the importance of ensuring the new country made the right impression and worked within the confines of her place to ensure the work was done correctly. An infamous example of Dolly's abilities was her success in diffusing what was seen as a major slight when Jefferson escorted Dolly during a state dinner with Great Britain, and not the wife of the British ambassador, as was custom. Though she was unsuccessful in initially convincing Jefferson to follow tradition, she was able to mitigate the damage by working within her network to pass along messages of apology, likely preventing an international incident. While her husband worked on international relations as Secretary of State, Dolly did her part domestically, filling in as hostess as needed to impress foreign heads of state. She worked meticulously to plan extravagant receptions that would make representatives of other countries take notice of the newly formed nation. Dolly's status as the wife of a cabinet member and her ability to put people at ease and make everyone feel welcome made her one of the most popular women in the capital. Of course, as a woman married to a man in politics, Dolly became political fodder for critics of the Jefferson administration and those who were against her husband seeking to replace him as president. In the run-up to the election of her husband, rumors circulated about Dolly and James's marriage. More pointedly, their lack of children. Foes claimed the Madison marriage was childless due to James Madison's impotence. Since the decorum of the time was to not be seen as actively campaigning for a position, Madison could do little to defend his marriage or his wife, lest he be seen as engaging in political jockeying. Though they tried, the efforts to smear the Madisons were unsuccessful. Madison won the presidency handedly, and even his opponents were aware of Dolly's positive impact. In the aftermath of the election, Governor Pinckney said of Dolly, quote, I was beaten by Mr. and Mrs. Madison. I might have had a better chance had I faced Mr. Madison alone, end quote. Dolly was the first wife known to attend the inauguration of her newly elected husband and later became referred to as Presidentress. In a mood to celebrate and with years of Washington experience now under her belt, Dolly planned a presidential inaugural ball. 
And here's another myth about Mrs. Madison that is filled with only part of the story. While Dolly was, in fact, the first presidential spouse to plan a ball, it wasn't the first one ever held. George Washington had a ball thrown in his honor in 1789. However, Dolly should get some credit, since thanks to her planning, balls are now held on Inauguration Day, a tradition she started. Prior to her tenure at the White House, there wasn't an identifiable role for the wife of the president. Both of her predecessors were uninterested in public life and were fiercely protective of their spouses. While they held the public receptions as was custom, Dolly was the first to really embrace the role. She was naturally gifted in walking the political high wire and better able to separate the political from the personal. This ability allowed her to be successful in carving out a public space for herself and provided her husband an extra benefit from her innate talents. One of the most famous stories involving Dolly Madison is her saving of the George Washington portrait as the British laid siege to Washington, D.C., in their quest to burn the capital city. Though the portrait was physically removed and saved by the enslaved individual Paul Jennings, Dolly did indeed give the order as she was preparing to vacate the premises, saying, quote, Not yet. The portrait of Washington. It shall never fall into the hands of the enemy. That must be taken away before I leave the house. End quote. And while this is an amazing story, I, for one, found myself most impressed with her willingness to stay in the White House despite the ongoing military engagement occurring just miles from the presidential mansion. Even as militiamen abandoned post and citizens of the city fled, Dolly was determined to wait until her husband returned safely. Madison, who had ridden to the front lines of the approaching army, issued a warning to his wife, saying, quote, Run for your life or be taken prisoner by the British. End quote. True partners, James and Dolly discussed what she should do should the time come for her to vacate the mansion. Madison asked his wife to prioritize grabbing state papers before making her exit. Dolly, though determined to stay until the last second, fulfilled her husband's wishes and secured the documents in trunks placed safely in covered wagons destined for the outskirts of the city. On her way out of the mansion, Dolly also noticed a copy of the Declaration of Independence sitting in a glass case and made sure to place it in another trunk. After Madison retired from the presidency in 1817, both he and Dolly returned to the family plantation in Virginia to care for his ailing mother, Nellie Conway Madison, who stayed in one wing of the large estate while Dolly and James made residence in another wing. Dolly cared for her ailing mother-in-law until her death in 1829. Seven years after his mother passed away, James Madison died on June 28, 1836, at the age of 85. Dolly was so distraught at the loss of her husband and partner that she reportedly did not attend the service. In his will, Madison left Dolly in charge of his estate and wished for his remaining assets to be used to provide support and maintenance for her for the remainder of her lifetime. However, debts mounted and Dolly quickly became impoverished. The one thing Madison banked on, the notes he took during the Constitutional Convention, to provide a large enough windfall for Dolly failed to generate the price he had hoped. This is partially a result of Dolly's son, Payne, who was inept at negotiating a fair and equitable price for the historic papers. While Madison preferred Dolly free the family slaves, 
She instead sold them in an effort to pay off debts. Her finances became so dire that she was forced to sell the Montpelier estate and move from the family plantation into what is known as the Dolly Madison House on Lafayette Square in Washington, D.C. The house still stands today and is currently used as an office building. Hearing of Dolly's hardship, Congress passed a resolution approving a payment of $30,000 for James Madison's remaining notes of the convention in 1837. Her debts were so large at this point that most of the stipend she received went straight to her creditors. Even a former slave, Paul Jennings, was moved enough to provide what he could to assist Dolly in her retirement. Celebrated as a pioneer for women in politics, Congress passed a resolution in 1844 granting America's First Lady a, quote, seat within the hall. The seat allowed Dolly to sit in the House of Representatives and listen as congressmen conducted the business of the nation. She was also an honorary chair of a women's group, tasked with raising funds to help build the Washington Monument. In her final years as elder stateswoman, Dolly got to send the nation's first telegram in 1844 from Washington to Baltimore. And while the honorary titles were enjoyed by Madison, what she needed was money. In 1848, Congress passed a final resolution providing another appropriation to Dolly in the amount of $25,000 for the last volumes of her husband's papers. Aware that her son Payne was less than trustworthy with money, the endowment was placed into a trust of sorts, precluding Payne from gaining access and wasting it away. Dolly passed away in her home on July 12, 1849, at the age of 81. She was laid to rest next to her husband on the family estate in Virginia. In an announcement of her death, published in the National Intelligencer, the author highlighted why she was so cherished, writing, quote, Beloved by all who personally knew her and universally respected, this venerable lady closed her long and well-spent life with calm resignation, with goodness of heart, and combined with piety only can impart, end quote. Dolly enjoyed a fine reputation throughout her lifetime and continues to be one of the most popular first ladies in American history. Before I sign off for today, I want to say thank you so much to all of you out there for your ongoing support of the show. Whether it's a review, a download, or spreading the word to your friends, I'm so grateful and thankful you decide to spend your time with me. Thanks for being awesome, peeps. See you next week. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Civics and Coffee. If you want to hear more small snippets from American history, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to our next cup of coffee together. Thank you.